This Moment in Our Wild on Our Public Lands is brought to you by our partners at the Wilderness Society, founded by conservation giants like Aldo Leopold, Bob Marshall, and honored in the imagery of Councilmember Ansel Adams. The Wilderness Society has had a mission protecting our public lands since 1935. In this time of unprecedented threat to the places you care about, please consider learning and offering your support at wilderness.org. Hey all, Terry here. It's summertime and right now I'm having a hard time believing most of you out there in the Northern Hemisphere are enjoying your summer months with toes dipped in the river or basking in the sun. That's because I'm seated here on a granite bench, which is part of a larger granite prow, overlooking the grand wide expanse of the Taku Glacier in Alaska. I've joined the Juneau Icefield Research Program for their annual expedition across the ice, and now I'm looking down and watching the second half of our group methodically glide their skis across the glacier in a path roughly parallel to the oldest glacier study transect in the country. Their 16 tired bodies are finishing up the two-day-long traverse on rock, on ice, on snow, by ski and crampons from our first camp. Their small silhouettes are swallowed by the scale of the scene, a panoramic sweep of snow and ice, backed by the black teeth of the Taku Towers, which cut into the low gray sky. If you're curious why this group of students and scientists comes year after year for this adventure across the ice, what they come to learn, what it means to them, well, Stay tuned. Born from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. It is more interesting for us to become engaged perhaps in the science of glaciers by hearing about a story of young people traversing across an ice field for a summer than just hearing about the amount of mass that the Taku Glacier is, is losing, right? In a classroom, you feel distant from this type of environment. Um, you can look at photos, you can read about things in textbooks, but when you're here and you're hands-on with the environment, it's just, it's a lot more real. The other reason I like this program is, is we do have such a range of students. It's kind of getting students hooked on science, yeah. if anything. You know, the, the range of students include 
people that want to go into policy and, and law and become doctors and lawyers even and, and you know the whole gamut but also scientists and it's a cool opportunity for students to kind of interact with each other and get to know each other and you build this broader network. It's been wild. It's been so much fun. Every day is like a new little adventure. Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is the place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Welcome to Episode 14, an adventure dispatch from the Juno Icefield Research Program. I first heard about this unique training program for our next generation of Earth scientists nearly two decades ago. While working for the Park Service, some colleagues and friends were involved with the program and expressed what a moving experience it was. Fast forward to this summer where I had the pleasure to receive an invite to accompany the team for two weeks of their summer studies and finally get a feel for myself what my friends were talking about years ago. The Juno Icefield Research Program, or JERP, as it is affectionately called by alumni and students, is an eight-week immersion classroom in the wilderness of the Juneau Icefield, during which participants, both undergraduate, graduate, high school juniors and seniors, traverse from Juneau, Alaska to Atlin, British Columbia. The Juneau Icefield covers an area the size of Rhode Island and includes some 50 outlet glaciers. In this wild classroom, Students are guided by faculty mentors and immerse themselves in a number of projects investigating ice mass, glacier movement, climactic changes, but also learn the art of communicating science to the masses. And well, frankly, also indulge in a little time for artful reflection. It is a place in a classroom unlike any other I've seen. You know, here at The Adventure Activist, we believe in the transformative nature of exploration, and it struck me in my time away hearing the excitement in the students' voices and watching their wide eyes take in the vast expanse of ice for the first time, that adventure is also a potent fuel, something that can stoke the fire for learning about a place and understanding our world. I think you'll find in the voices ahead that this experience strikes an emotional chord in the students and faculty that resonates into their lives ahead. I hope it resonates with you. Oh, and please excuse the background noise. It's a field program after all, so... Most of these interviews were conducted high on a granite Nunatak, where, well, wind happens. So, we start with Glacier Mass Balance faculty lead and United States Geologic Survey geophysicist, Chris McNeil. Chris is maintaining the scientific lineage of investigating glacier change in Alaska, which extends back to the days of John Muir. He talks a bit about the seeds of the program and how it got to be the program it is today. So actually, it all started with this fellow named William O'Field, who started surveying and photographing glacier termini in Alaska back in the 1920s. And he continued doing so until the 1940s when he picked up a young aspiring student named Maynard Malcolm Miller. The two of them were curious kind of what was driving the varying glacier response to changes in climate, specifically looking at Taku Glacier, which was advancing at the time in a period when all other glaciers were either stagnant or retreating. 
So it was in 1946, they selected the Juneau Ice Field. And again, this was largely due to the fact that Taku Glacier has been advancing for approximately the last 150 years, uh, while all the other glaciers of the Juneau Ice Field have been thinning and retreating. And then talk about a little bit more about where, I guess, Maynard then took that idea and that early research and, and the seed for, for this program that we're involved in right now. Basically, the first 10 years of the program, which at the time was called the Juno Icefield Research Project, was funded by the Office of Naval Research um, and the American Geographical Society. So after the 10-year project span kind of petered out in 1958, they started bringing up post-doctorate students as well as PhD students, eventually led to more of master-level students, and now uh, we take up undergrad students each summer. Yeah. And what are you, where are you off to today? You're just about to get out the door and head out on the ice, but what's the plan for today? Yeah. So today we're about to ski out onto Taku Glacier and we're going to dig some snow pits to measure the water equivalent accumulation of snow on the glacier surface. So measuring how much snow is left over on the glacier from this previous winter. And that method has roughly been utilized for how long in this area? That method of measuring glacier mass balance has been utilized since the mid-1940s on Taku Glacier, um, as well as the early 1950s on Lemon Creek Glacier, which makes these the longest glacier mass balance records in North America, as well as some of the longest in the world. Yeah, and from what I understand, where we're sitting right now, looking out over the Taku and at the Taku Towers, we're essentially looking down the line of one of the longest standing transects or glacier study sites, right, in the, in the United States. Yeah, so uh, not only have we been measuring the mass balance of this glacier, but also the velocity and the surface elevation of the glacier since the 1940s. Specifically, we're sitting above what's called Profile 4, which is, I do believe, the longest measured survey transect of any glacier in North America. Corey Kennedy and I had the pleasure of sharing the long plod from Camp 17 to Camp 10, and I admired her ability to wear a smile through the endeavor, even through frequent applications of blister tape. That sort of resilience deserves respect, and I think you'll find her enthusiasm is infectious. I heard about DERP from my professor uh-huh. back at IUPUI, uh-huh. and also Seth Campbell came oh, to our okay. campus for a colloquium, and he gave a talk. So I was able to meet with him briefly. Oh, really? And he told me all about it. Okay. And so I looked into it more, and when I was learning more about it, you know, like my heart started beating really fast. <laughs> I got really excited about it and just knew that I had to do it. Yeah. Why, why do you think it gave you so much excitement? Is it this uh, type of environment or place you've never really quite been to before? Or? I've never been to Alaska. Yeah. I hadn't ever been on a glacier until I got here. Oh, my God. <laughs> I guess it was the adventure and doing something new, Okay. mainly. Yeah. And, and the science, of course. Yeah. So tell me about your science background then before and, and how it came to be that you saw Seth um, kind of speak at a seminar at, at, at your school. Sure. So I studied environmental science 
at IUPUI. I just graduated in May. And before that, I remember we had a conversation on one of our, our kind of trips here leading up to getting here to Camp 10, but you did do some time with the Park Service too, is that right? Correct, kind yeah. Of summers? I started with the Park Service when I was 17 years old with oh. the Youth Conservation Corps in Yellowstone. Okay. Um, and then I worked for them a year later, did trail crew, continued in Yellowstone for a couple more years until I landed like more of a science position the biological science technician. Is that what spurred your interest for the degree? Honestly, yeah. So I grew up in Indiana. Um, So the outdoor community isn't as big as you might find like out west or in Colorado. And then when I was 16, I did the Joey Armstrong scholarship out in Yosemite. And so I had never really traveled out west before ever. My family never really traveled. And so that was the first time seeing like real mountains Uh for me and it was like a leadership program but also uh, learning about like conservation and environmental education and it just really opened my eyes to the great outdoors and um, conservation in general and the importance of preservation. Right it sounds like a big part of your formative experience with this field was actually being in it from the very beginning. I mean being in a place like Yellowstone which so awe-inspiring in its own right I think is memorable and I guess that brings to a point like do you think that studying while you're out in an environment like this is is actually immensely more impactful than just being in a classroom in a classroom you feel distant from this type of environment Um, you can look at photos you can read about things in textbooks but when you're here and you're hands-on with the environment it's just it's a lot more real. Yeah. Yeah. Did adventure have a special place for you in your life and in your lifestyle prior to coming out here? I think that we learn the most when we push ourselves. And I think that's what I look for the most in adventure is pushing myself Mm. and learning from it and just like struggles in general. I think you learn the most from that. What did you learn from our last struggle here (laughs) a few days ago? (laughs) It was a humbling experience, definitely. Yeah, but you crushed it like a rock star. Despite (laughs) the blistered feet and sore toes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I learned that if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, you can push through anything. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the longest. Well, how much had you actually skied before you'd even gone here? I had never cross-country skied before I came here. I think I've downhill skied twice in my entire life and once was in Indiana, so that doesn't really count. (laughs) And how many miles did we just ski over a couple days, roughly? It was about 30 miles. Yeah. 30 miles on skis and crampons. On glaciated terrain with crevasses. On glaciated terrain with crevasses. (laughs) No bigs. (laughs) (laughs) Up in Icefall, which was my favorite part by far. Right. That was really cool. What are you excited about um, kind of diving into now? We're really kind of in the bulk of our kind of studies and, and research uh, component of, of the program here in the, in the middle. Um, is there something you're, you're looking forward to learning about in particular or a project you're looking forward to working on? I'm in the ecology project and we're looking at plant succession in this type of environment. Um, and I'm looking forward to learning more about that and from other people as well. One thing I've already thought about is, um, and what I've always had a challenge is, is trying to explain this experience to friends when I get back home. 
<laughs> have you uh, done some introspection or some journaling on that? You're laughing away about it as if you just was on your mind. But I don't know how easy it's going to be to put this experience into words. Yeah. Um, I think photos might be a good place to start, but that doesn't even capture the experience at all. Okay, so we're going to draw some pictures and oh yeah we're so we're gonna start building up the earth's climate from the simplest things we're gonna start with energy and we're gonna use the metric of temperature just because that's a well it's an easy one to understand we talk about a lot talk about earth's temperature now and like what you expect every day and like how it might change in the future that's where we're gonna start with. it's also like most of those other variables all sort of like uh depend on temperature. So we're going to imagine the Earth is a brick sitting out in space at absolute zero. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, all you guys know about Kelvin temperature? Yeah. 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 So absolute zero is just absolutely no energy at all. So there's the sun and the Earth gets energy from it and it's sitting there at absolute zero in space and then the sun shines on it and what happens? It warms. it warms up. Yeah. One of the gifts of an experience like this is the opportunity to learn. And just there you captured a tidbit of one of the best climate physics overview lessons I've heard from Dr. Brad Markle. You know, Brad's history tracks back to his formative years as a student in 2007. And one of my favorite tidbits of trivia gleaned from the JERP archives is that Brad has never once woken up on the ice field in a bad mood. Brad is a postdoc at the Earth Research Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he studies climate variability and climate dynamics. He likes to climb, run, ski, drink coffee, and scheme boondoggles. And some of those boondoggles have brought him to waking up on sailboats off Antarctica. I'll let Brad explain. I was a student originally on trip in 2007. Seth current director and I were actually students together on the program. And that was back when Dr. Miller, the guy who started the program, was still in charge and up here. And, and right now your area of interest in a, in a general term involves climate. And, and was that something that was on your radar screen at that time, way back in 2007? Or was it just uh, you came here for the idea of the adventure and be able to spend some time out in Alaska or a little bit of both? Yeah, it was actually a little bit of both. So yeah, now I'm a climate scientist. And at the time in 2007, when I was an undergraduate, I was studying geology and physics. And I'd always thought I was interested in glaciers and climate, but I didn't really know too much about them, only interacted with them through, you know, mountain climbing and this sort of thing. And I always was really curious about them. And it wasn't something that was available at my school to learn about in terms of like classes and stuff. So I saw a, like a flyer pinned to the wall in my school that looked like it had been printed in the 70s of people 
scaling mountains and stuff in Alaska <laughs> and, and doing glacier science. And uh, it was a flyer from Drip that probably was printed in the 70s when I still had a bunch of them. Yeah, so I, I started trying to figure out how to do that and uh, found my way up to the ice field. It's, it's interesting to hear your story because I've come off uh, having a number of conversations with, with the students that are here. And even in just the last three weeks, they talk about the same process. They kind of came with mostly a curiosity um, about the place, but also about the field of study. And then the other thing that they offer that comes kind of thematically out of my conversations with them is because the immersion in this place over the last few weeks, um, they start to feel a sense of urgency to really learn more. It's almost like a responsibility to learn more. And I think a lot of that comes from hearing stories from faculty like yourself about how things have changed. Um, do you feel like when your your first experience way back in, in 2007, was that somewhat of a formative one for you to help solidify where you were gonna go from there? I mean, did you know you were, you were on your way to a graduate level degree and further academic research or was this part of that? Yeah, it I definitely changed the direction I was going. I guess at the time had many ideas about things I might do and uh, once I went up to JERP, I realized that I wanted to keep doing that if I could figure out a way to, you know, be able to study things I thought were interesting and be in places I thought were amazing, then I wanted to do that. And yeah, yeah so all the many different paths I thought I might have really collapsed into just a few, uh, including what I ended up doing. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you end up, or I guess developing a passion or interest for your, your field of discipline? And then um, I'd love to have you expand a little bit about what you're doing right now. Sure. After, like, Jerp really planted the seed of studying climate and glaciers and ice and um, the interaction between things like the atmosphere and the geology and the uh, cryosphere, all this kind of stuff. And like I said, it wasn't something really available at my at my college, so I did as much as I could. And then after Jerp, I just kept reaching out to different people to see if I could get experience and ended up doing a, some master's degree research studying climate in Antarctica. And then that led into doing a PhD of studying how climate in Antarctica and all of the world changes over long periods of time. That's what I do now. How'd you get your break to get down to Antarctica? And I think you, every time I look at like the students' eyes when they're seeing pictures of Antarctica, which many of the faculty here have had a lot of time on the ground and spent some, some boot time tromping around on the ice, they all seem like, oh my God, if I just had an opportunity to get down there. I mean, how did that materialize for you? Yeah, so after JERP, in fact, the very next, like, fall after JERP, I applied for a job in Antarctica, yeah. and I didn't get it. And I, So the next year I applied and didn't get it, and just kept doing that for a few years. And then, so people kind of knew my name and stuff, and then just while I was doing a master's degree, I was in New Zealand uh, doing a master's degree, and with people who worked on Antarctica and there's real no opportunity that I was going to have a chance to go down. But then someone bailed out at the last minute because I had asked a bunch of times. <laughs> they were like, okay, Brad, you want to go? We're leaving in a month. And so, yeah, I went in the first time. And then, yeah, that just led to many more opportunities. That's awesome. Awesome. Did you just come off the ice this last season? Uh, were you there? I guess when was the last time you were there? Yeah, I was actually there this last winter. I've, every time I've gone down, it's been totally different. This last time I went down on a sailboat, sailed down from Patagonia down to the Antarctic Peninsula. And it was it was actually with a, a private tourist expedition. Oh. And so I went down as a scientist to be on board and I did a bit of my own research. I was 
looking at the chemical characteristics of the atmosphere as we sailed around among the glaciers on the Antarctic Peninsula. So I was doing a bit of research and then also talking to the guests about, about Antarctica and climate and how it's changing and this sort of thing. You ever had uh, any uh, particularly uh, funny or just flat out scary moments down there on the ice? I mean, you did have to stay on an icebreaker with a bunch of Russians. Does that can always be sporty. <laughs> yeah, that that whole expedition was pretty sporty. Uh, I went with a big international expedition all on a Russian icebreaker, and we were going to a bunch of Antarctic and subantarctic islands, and our project was to get on top of these tiny little ice caps on these islands and drill shallow ice cores and so a lot of these places, like, no one had ever been before because you need an icebreaker and a helicopter and you need good weather, and you never have all three of those there. But we did, actually, and so we'd get in the helicopter and fly to these little ice caps and drill, and that was just a ridiculous, amazing time, but occasionally pretty sporty. You know, the weather's never good there, and helicopters only like good weather, so there was always a chance that we would get stuck out there, and there was a couple of times where we were on the top of these little ice caps, and we'd barely get good enough weather to land and then they'd leave us and we'd be like, I hope they come back. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it was a little exciting. Also, helicopters landing on moving icebreakers is pretty exciting too. Yeah, right, right. And then, you know, Russian-based expeditions, sometimes the ratio of vodka versus fresh water is intriguing. <laughs> yeah, everything about the Russian expedition part was pretty weird. We only ate meatballs and buckwheat, like three meals a day the whole time. It was... Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Very sure sporty. Really <laughs> well, what were you, um, just to get a little bit more in the area of your research, so what are you, what are you looking for in the ice cores? What's um, kind of the, the, the general question, uh, or I guess the, the theme of a lot of your investigations? The general thing I'm interested in is how the climate system works and how it changes over time. For the recent time period, we have a lot of observations from satellites and people standing around with thermometers, but if we want to look back you know, more than 30 years or more than 100 years, we don't have direct observations. And so we have to look towards natural records of what the climate did. And a lot of natural records get recorded in snowfall. Chemistry of the atmosphere gets recorded in there. There are certain aspects of the water chemistry that tell you about the temperature. And so my work is, a lot of my work is understanding how those things that you can measure in snow and ice relate to the climate, the thing you actually want to understand, and then going to places and getting long records of that. So gone to the center of West Antarctica and we drilled down a few miles and can pull out, you know, 80,000 years of, of records of how the snow chemistry changed every year for 80,000 mm -hmm. years. And that tells us about how the, the climate changed. And so this would kind of be, I guess, a lot of people use the term paleoclimate investigations yeah. would kind of be in that, that arena. And uh, the implications of that, uh, obviously, you're basically taking historical case records of what happened with certain variables and using that to model what might happen with the variables under investigation these days? Is that... Uh, yeah, th that's exactly right. Yeah, so I'm interested both in what the climate did in the past and then also how it works. And so by studying the paleoclimate, like you mentioned, we can understand what happened in the past, which gives us like context for what the climate system is capable of doing and how it responds to different types of changes. Like, for example, CO2 in the atmosphere changed in the past, and so we can see what the climate did then, and we're changing CO2 now, so it gives us some ability to predict what will happen in the future. And then in addition to that, I'm also interested in just not what it did, but how it works. And so by looking at um, records from many different parts of the climate system in the past, we can see how they interact during different types of change, and that, that tells us 
or we can learn a little bit more about the underlying physics and mechanisms yeah. by which the climate changes, not just its history, but you know the internal workings of it. Also, you're you're bringing your own investigations here and and your own projects here. Um, what are you up up to this afternoon and and heading out in a bit for a, a quick field project, I believe, right? Yeah, that's right. So this afternoon we're going to ski out in the middle of the Taku, right in front of us there, and we're going to go dig through a little bit, actually. They already dug the hole a couple of days ago, but we're going to go <laughs> to, the, to the hole they already dug. And we're going to take snow samples throughout this year's snowpack, and then we'll save them. And after the season, we're going to measure the an aspect of the water chemistry there. Mm-hmm. What we're going to measure is the ratio of stable isotopes in the snow. And this is the a property of the snow that changes depending on where you are in the globe, and it records things like the temperature that the snow fell at. And so we've been measuring that on the Juno Ice Field for maybe five years at at these snow pits all across the glaciers here and also in taking surface transects up and down the glaciers and in the past what we've just been trying to understand is the sort of spatial pattern of this water chemistry over the glaciers try to figure out what it relates to and now we have enough data that this year we're trying to answer a, a very specific question using that data and using a little bit of other data which is all this snow that fell on the glacier here came from somewhere it was transported by the climate to this spot and we're going to try to figure out where it came from and so some of information about uh, where it came from and how it got here is recorded in the snow chemistry and then we're going to also play with some climate models to sort of figure out where the wind patterns that would bring water and snow here originate. Mm -hmm. And the long-term implications of that being if you start to create a new register or a log of that information that we may see over time in the decades to come, how that begins to change. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so we've just sort of started a somewhat long-term monitoring of the water isotope ratios on the ice field, and the the last five or six years will be a nice baseline to understand if, if those properties and the climate properties that they record change into the future. Yeah. So part of the focus of the program is to learn how glaciers have responded to climate change over time. But as we know, linkages between ecosystems and human populations have become increasingly apparent. I was intrigued to chat a bit with Issa Hensman about her interest in this overlap in a small village in Peru and asked her to expand on why she came all the way from the glaciers of Switzerland to join the program here in Alaska. It's this um, village in Peru where they have uh, like a huge glacier lake um, has been built because of the glaciers melting. And now there's this valley with lots of people living there and there's a big risk of an outburst. And so the people aren't aware of that and the government isn't doing anything. So like there's this connection between human geography and physical geography. Yeah. So what were you hoping to get out of this experience and coming to the United States and coming to Alaska? 
Um, it was just always a dream for me to combine like outdoors stuff and my like geography. Yeah, to combine those fields, science and outdoor stuff. And we didn't get that many opportunities in my bachelor to do field work outside. And yeah, just two months field work sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, what, what's surprised you about the experience so far? We're just, uh, I guess, going to third third week for you now. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. First, it was this big mix of different people. Uh-huh. With so different backgrounds, and that's really interesting. And I don't know, we have many glaciers in Switzerland, and I climbed also many peaks and did lots of outdoor stuff in Switzerland. But yeah, the ice field is totally different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Bertie Miller is a talented young scientist with a body of experience studying the cryosphere. During the program, every evening, a student shares a reflection and insight with the group after dinner, and I was impressed by Bertie's insights on learning in immersion. Our conversation started expanding on this, how the medium of the expedition, the long days outside, immersed in movement in the space between thinking and not thinking, enhances her learning experience. I then let her slip back to drop some science and expand on what we mean by paleoclimate. I love reading and I love learning about things uh, as you know through proxy but I think a lot of the times when I internalize things or when I can really grow with a subject as a person or also sort of my best thinking as a student has been in this space is not when I'm actively answering a question or actively um, taking notes in a paper or trying to look up a word I don't know but and like I like I was talking about sort of in this in between moments when I'm not really paying attention to what I'm mm-hmm. thinking or when when especially as someone who does a lot of endurance activity this place requires a lot of you in a lot of repetitive motion whether it be skiing or sort of a lot of routine like filling water mm-hmm. multiple times a day that sort of repetition has allowed a lot of thinking space where I'm not really tapped into what I'm thinking but I notice that I've sort of mm-hmm. come away from that day or from that eight hours of skiing with a lot more than I entered it. And sometimes it's personal and sometimes it's a lot more to do with the science of what I'm doing here. I can read about crevasses as another thing to deal with them and, yeah. and you know, traverse them and, and like, you know, witness their depth and <laughs> encounter their depth during safety training. And there's sort of like the embodiment of it, I think, is where I do that best growth because it's like it's happening and it's unseeable, you know? So yeah. it's, 
yeah. think there's something to be said under the surface there, because certainly what we've gleaned from neuroscience is some of our best, I mean, to be really scientific about it, I mean, we, yeah. we kind of create those synaptic connections actually at times of, of rest, right. whether it be sleep or, as you kind of talked about, these, I guess, these monotonous, long, right. drawn out, not necessarily contemplative no, phases, but, but where we're, we're kind of just like in between, right. like the experience right. you and I had crossing the ice field a couple right. of days ago. I mean, that was... Totally. On one day, 13 hours, and another day, you know, eight-ish hours right. of just watching your skins glide. Totally. And, and, and you find yeah. that that's um, really important for you to consolidate some of the informational lessons that you're that you're, you're taking in during this time. Totally. And, um, you know, like a part of you, of course, is awake. You know, the one that's, yeah. the only one that's awake and moving. And, yeah. you know, we were roped in together. So there's a lot you have to pay attention to and, you know, be smart about and... Um, I think, you know, a lot of that too is with your body and, and with your mind, but that sort of in-between space of when you're not, I feel like I only notice it when I'm surfacing again, when I'm suddenly realize or look up and realize the view or realize the whiteout, you know, yeah. there's sort of like, I can recognize it when it feels like I'm waking up again, but there's sort of these intermittent periods of like, my mind is somewhere else and I'm not sure where, and I can't remember where it was, but we were doing the thing, you know, we were, we were, we were, we were crossing the glacier, right, you know, gears, yeah. gears were turning, cells dividing, on. putting our crampons on, it yeah. was all happening. And I think that like, that sort of like, you know, insensible water between awake thinking and um, processing what's around me and where, where I'm living right now and what I'm doing with my body and what I'm trying to learn and you know soon I'm going to be going to the ice divide and it feels like even getting there I'm going to be learning a lot about it just as much as when I'm collecting radar data data when I'm out there yeah and especially on the return too there's sort of like in in journeying there's like a lot of the, that space I from my personal standpoint the one thing I I find a challenge in kind of with modern technology compared to when I was a full-time student is um, the distraction right. in, in modern world too. And I, I think being fully immersed and mm. somewhat disconnected creates a clear space to totally. kind of concentrate on the work. Totally. Is that something you find is important for you too? Or? Yeah. The work and um, kind of just this environment itself too, which is connected to the work. Right. But yeah, it totally is. Even in, you know, I, it's sort of, I don't have any sort of separate life happening other than this. You know, there's no, yeah, exactly. there's no other place that I'm checking into or, I mean, I can write home, but it's like I'm sending back pieces of this and this is what I have and this is where I am, you know, and there's sort of. Also not like, tempted my to check self. in other right. people's lives while you're just right. living your own. Yeah. Right. And I, and even, you know, thinking more about the scientific work I'm doing here, but also thinking about the ice itself and, and who I am that becomes closer too because I don't have like my personal life is on the ice with me hmm. you know it's yeah. not elsewhere at home or or connected to yeah. like having the urge or impulse to check in with what other people are doing there's sort of no comparison I can sort of pour my whole self mentally you know slightly more cerebrally yeah. here as well as sort of personally so are what you're about to embark on and and, and heading out mm -hmm. with uh, I imagine you're heading out with Seth and, yeah and yeah I'm on the geophysics team yeah. yeah now was that uh, in a similar arena of, of work that you were doing previously or is this going to be a, a new 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 game for you a new game it's it's yeah. a little bit closer to what I wanted what I want to be doing in the future mm -hmm. my school is a very small one and a really fantastic one and my undergraduate research there was more focused on paleoclimate which we actually have a project going on that's looking at isotopes and doing paleoclimate reconstruction. My work was mostly looking at volcanic eruptions in the Aleutian Islands to do um, paleoclimate in the Bering Sea. Mm -hmm. So also in Alaska, also oh. thinking about climate, 
I was working with fantastic advisor who's actually a paleo-oceanographer, so it's a little bit adjacent to ice work, but still thinking about, you know, climate records and climate proxies and actually a lot of the things we do here with isotopes and, and ice cores also have to do with tephra volcanic ash layers because they're great aging markers. So I have some familiarity with the work we do here, but just none in geophysics because we didn't have any, you know, ice physics happening where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. but it's been a great connection to, you know, I, I had a chapter to enter this kind of work in through the work I did in the past. And sort of what I've been thinking about. There, Maybe but. for some of our other listeners that aren't as familiar, what's, oh, yeah. what's the importance, um, I guess, as far as how would you best translate the importance of, of paleoclimate research right. as it relates to some of our common, our, our modern day questions? Yeah. Yeah. So what paleoclimate is, you could think of it as um, studying past climate. It's also generally talked about like any climate research that you're looking at by proxy. So you're not actually studying the atmosphere. Maybe you're looking at tree rings or things that climate leaves marks on that you can then infer what the climate was. So it's really useful, especially for climate models. I mean, this is sort of the big thing. If we ever want to find out if our climate models for how the world's going to be are at all useful or accurate, the way we can do that is by modeling what we have now. So we could, with with paleoclimate data, reconstruct a past climate, apply the model we have to that past climate, and if it gives us what we have today, you know, he have to put in a lot of different factors here, including industrialization, or a lot of things with dating that can go wrong. But if the model's working, then you can use that past climate to check how good it is, essentially. You can reconstruct, let's say, so I was working in mostly the last 17,000 years. So let's say we had a climate model that we wanted to apply to those last 17,000 years in the Bering Sea. We would put our parameters on what we thought it was like then, and Mm -hmm. if it gives us what we're looking at now, then we know it's generally working pretty well. So it it gives us a lot of certainty for how our models are working, and also beyond just sort of checking our models for the future, it also tells us a lot of information about the things we're looking at. So... And where we might go with some right. of the current variables we're exactly. concerned about. Right. Yeah. So it, it always helps to learn more about, say, how the Pacific Ocean has changed in the past and what happens when it changes, yeah. given that it will change in the future. Right. You know, so beyond just checking the accuracy of our predictions, it's helpful to know more about what we're looking at. And we don't know a lot. <laughs> we're, we're, we're learning. But, but we certainly are worried about some numbers that are climbing, right. like our right. carbon dioxide levels and the acidities. Right, and, right. and yeah. the Pacific Ocean is the biggest carbon sink on the planet. Or well, not, yeah, on the planet. On the planet. Is, and water yes. is where most of our carbon goes. Right. right. Over 90%. So, so, it's good yeah. to learn more. <laughs> and what's what's uh, coming up next then with, with Seth and the group that's flying in in right. a couple days? So this is what I'm really excited about right now. The group that's flying in a couple days is from Columbia University. And we are going to the Mathis-Llewellyn Ice Divide. And essentially, an ice divide is a place where you can see different flows of glaciers going off in different directions. The Mathis is one glacier, the Llewellyn is another. But we have two projects happening. We want to use radar, ground-penetrating radar, to get a map of the ice thickness and which will essentially give us also the bed topography underneath the mm-hmm. ice. So we're concerned about ice thickness as well as the way the ice flows. The Taku is one of the deepest, if not the deepest, I could check on that, but it's <laughs> one of the deepest temperate glaciers in the world. It has a huge volume of ice, and up until recently it was advancing. It isn't anymore, and the Matheson and Llewellyn are farther back in the system of the Juno ice field, and if we can get a transect going all the way from Mathis Llewellyn down to the Taku will essentially be able to get a whole bed topography of what's flowing into the Taku glacier and using that we can get a pretty good idea of how the Taku is flowing, how thick it is, how much ice is there. 
The second thing we want to do is create a 3D model grid of the topography underneath the ice divide. So that's the place where those flows are separating. And the, the people from Columbia that we're working with, they're really concerned about the ice divide. We would we we are really trying to look at the Taku and how it's flowing. So, but you know, collaboration is everything. So yeah. we're using all the hands we can get. Concerned and, because we are at or have just passed a point where it seems like it is no longer growing or advancing. Right, right. And so the the terminus was advancing. Um, the toe of the glacier was advancing uh, up until recently, but it's been thinning. So. Yeah. Even though it was pushing forward, it's recently stopped pushing out forward for a couple of years, and it is thinning. So we've had a negative mass balance for quite yeah. a few years. And this is a great thing about this program too. There's so many projects happening where we can all use everybody here. So we have yeah. a whole mass balance team, which is collecting all this mass balance data, which can totally back up yeah. and inform the flow data that we're trying to get. Nadia Grisaru represents a fresher experience, entering her junior year at Yale and just now exploring field work in our frozen world. We talk about how she found her way to Alaska from her home in Brooklyn, New York. And we talk a bit on the hope born from rich experience shared with those with common values. I'd wanted to, I've always wanted to come visit Alaska. I've never been before. And I've never really done much mountaineering. And so I wanted to try all of those things. And then I I wanted to, you know, spend my summer outdoors and doing things like this. And so I also wanted to start kind of taking, since I haven't taken many classes in geology, I thought it was like a good chance to kind of start learning about some of these things and about glacier science because I don't know much about it and there aren't really that many classes offered about glaciers at Yale. And then, I mean, yeah, I was also really excited about coming with this group to the ice field and being in this concentrated environment with people who are really also really excited about learning about these things. And then faculty who like, like it's great to be with faculty who specialize in various aspects of glacier science and to get to learn from each of them about what they're interested in. I found on on trips like this or when you sign up for an opportunity like this, you you have, you know, your preconceived notions of what it might be. Like, check out the website, look at the pictures, Mm -hmm. look at some other people's, like, attestations or notes about what their experience was like. I mean, what... What has surprised you about the experience a lot so far? I don't know. I think lots of things. I think I didn't I didn't really know completely what to expect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I like I read the blog a little bit and looked at all of, you know, the pages on the website and I did and I talked to my sister's science teacher who'd done the program and kind of got to hear about like yeah, about the research that she'd done while she was here and what the program was like. Right. But I didn't realize that it was gonna be for the academics, I didn't realize how kind of intense it was going to be in a good way and so I you know kind of knew that we were going to be learning about glaciers and doing these research projects but I didn't 
know that there were going to be so many different faculty members yeah. in like flying in and out, you know, specializing in like their own, in their own things. And I also didn't realize that we were going to get, I knew we were going to do a research project, but I didn't know that we were going to get to kind of participate in all of the different research projects and like focus in one, but go out on, you know, field research trips with other groups also. Mm. Um, and so that has been, yeah, that's, I'm really excited about that. That's cool. And I want to get back to the research project component, but speaking of surprises, I mean, did you expect, like we just did an hour ago to be hiking up on a granite prow and be doing sketch work? No, yeah, I did not. And that's, yeah. And that's been, that's been really cool too. I love sketching and I haven't, I don't do it that much. And so, yeah, I love like that we, yeah, we sketch and we talk about the science and we like take measurements, but then we also talk about big picture stuff yeah. and yeah, it's just a great mix. And then part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is is after um, your, your reflection last night, maybe you kind of highlight for people who are listening what what uh, the camp assistant of the day, which was your role yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, typically does after dinner time. Yeah, so the camp assistant kind of throughout the day has various responsibilities like collecting water for the cooks and things mm-hmm. like that. But then after dinner, you have to do a daily reflection that's kind of around five minutes. And so people will, you know, people kind of will like tell jokes or you know reflect on the day or reflect on like some larger thing that they've been thinking about so I was talking a little bit about this poem that I read by Adrian Rich and then was talking about kind of and there was a local context behind that poem yeah well so so there was yeah so it was about this women's climbing team who died on Lennon Peak in the 1970s and and it was like so it was written from the point of view of the lead climber on that team and so the kind of like environment that is being described and that is like sort of like I've been thinking about that poem because it's sort of similar to what we're doing here mm-hmm. and I mean just the mountaineering kind of aspect of it but then it was also in the poem they talk about this kind of feeling like this isolation that this group of women has from the rest of the world as they're going on this expedition so I was just kind of talking about how I think we have a similar, if not so extreme, isolation here. And that leads to some pretty great things, like where everything's kind of amped up and intense and concentrated. And so even though we've only, like, we've been here for three weeks, but you're around these people all the time, so you get to know everyone really well, really fast. And then you're always learning and, and you know, thinking and asking questions. And moments of really focused attention together, like, paying attention to the line as you're negotiating a crevasse field. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think there was an analogy, I don't know if it, if, I'm trying to recall if it was in the poem or something that you mentioned, but there was about this line, like the, the line of fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, this, yeah, this line in the poem about this team is roped together as mm-hmm. they're climbing the mountain. And it's this, yeah, line about this blue rope of fire kind mm-hmm. of joining their bodies. And so, and so as we were traversing from Camp 10 to Camp 17, or Camp 17 to Camp 10 a few days ago, and we were roping up at points, and so I was kind of thinking about that image in the poem and then thinking that it's kind of a cool way, like a good physical representation of kind of the trust and the, like, kind of the bonds that you form here and that we're all kind right. of, like, supporting each other. And Do you ever worry or, or have you thought already about how you'll explain this experience or, or the importance of the work that's being done here with, to friends that may not necessarily want to dive in and do a ski mountaineering expedition or even want to sleep on a glacier for a few days. Yeah. I mean, is that something that's kind of crossed your mind, how you communicate this experience? Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I like, so I've, so I've been writing some letters to my, my family 
um, to my yeah my parents and my sister, and then also a couple of postcards to friends. And already I'm kind of, I like I, I'm kind of describing the, you know I'm describing kind of what we're doing, but not, mm-hmm. but it's 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 definitely hard to convey like some of the feelings through letters. So I like described the traverse, but I couldn't quite like you know say how like challenging parts of it were but also like that feeling of like arriving and mm-hmm. you know and things like that but th- but then yeah also of being up here i feel um yeah just being surrounded by people who are so kind of yeah have like many of the same goals and also are really interested in learning and kind of making a difference has made me feel um yeah like more hopeful and stronger again and I want to go back and kind of bring that back with me, mm-hmm. but it's definitely hard. It's going to be, I think, going to be really hard to convey like where that feeling of strength came yeah. from up here be, while being up here. Um, and then, in, and yeah, and I think, I, th- I mean, I think there are definitely other ways to get at that kind of, you know, to get at that kind of inner power and drive to want to make, you know, make change and stuff when you are back in the real world. So I, th- I mean, I think there are lots of ways to not, go about There's not that. one answer I'm, yeah, I'm asking because exactly. I'm curious too. I, I think it's, it's a challenge yeah. to try to, sometimes I'm embarrassed to even relate about my experiences out here. Cause I just, I know some people will be, um, it'll seem so foreign to them or, uh, they'll judge it as like, that was just some frivolous mm, experience, yeah. but it's hard to convey I guess essentially how formative these experiences yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet Definitely. you do want to take, you know, the lessons learned and the emotions that you felt in a place like this back home, which I think yeah. that's where I see the beauty of kind of the, the human aspect of the education here. I mean, the drawing, the reflections, yeah. um, the talks about, you know, science communication. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think that kind of like, even if we can't exactly, describe what it was like to be here and to kind of experience these things all together that just by like bringing ourselves back Mm -hmm. kind of out into the world and like taking new ideas and then this kind of yeah like desire and strength we may not Um, resonate or change all minds but we might a few right (laughs) yeah and and then we have that kind of like strength and power to try to do something Higgins is a JERP staff member and was a student in 2015. After leaving Carleton College, where she finished her degree in environmental studies, she worked at Climbing and Sierra Magazine, where she enjoyed reporting on women in the outdoors and as well on climate change at the poles. After breakfast one day, we sat on a granite perch above the Taku and we talked about her passion for project-based learning and how she found her role as a faculty member teaching the art of science communication. I 
think I started always really loving writing uh, and stories. My father is a really big storyteller, and um, growing up, going to sleep, being told stories that were not made up but were actually from his real life, I think made me really value that medium. And then in high school, I did a a field science-based program, sustainability program, um, in Maine at the school that I currently work at. Um, and that really made me invigorated by science and observations of the natural world and thinking critically about how we can do a better job taking care of the earth and be more responsible with our actions. And since that point, I think I have always been seeking how to mesh uh, these two passions of science and writing and storytelling, which is a really fun endeavor and allows me to exist in a lot of different worlds, including on the ice field. Yeah. And how did you find out about uh, the Juno Icefield Research Program initially, kind of your first yeah. involvement? I actually spent the summer of 2014 in Atlin, which is where the where JERP ends. When we get off the ice field, we hike off the Llewellyn Glacier, and then we take a boat across Atlin Lake and spend a few days in Atlin and do pre- presentations there to the Atlin community. And I was there in 2014 with another program called Round River Conservation Studies, which is focused more on working with the community, the Clinket, the native folk in Atlin, and doing we were doing some vegetation studies in alpine areas, um, some marmot studies, and well, every day I would go for a run up on the road there, and you could see the Llewellyn Glacier. Mm. Um, and then folks started talking about how after we left, there would be another group of students coming in, coming off that glacier. And I was like, that sounds really rad. Like, I want to do that. (laughs) And so I looked into it, and it just seemed like a phenomenal opportunity and adventure. And it turns out that I actually knew a lot of people that had been involved. Annika and I lived together in college. And so I was like, Annika, like, what is this thing? And she was like, it's amazing. You need to go. So I think I thought less about why and and more just felt that. Like, I had to go. When? Um, Yeah, yeah. When? When can I go? And so I came up here in 2015. And since then, I think I have felt that magnetism that a lot of people feel to the ice field, um, figuring out a way and a time of when I could come back uh, in a different role. Right. Did you find that this was a program in which your your dual interests could kind of thrive in? I mean, what I see now, I'm not sure if it existed at that time, but I certainly see that someone with similar interests as yours, both in writing, in creative arts, and in science, and immersion in the natural world. It's a perfect meld of those in my experience so far. Yeah, it feels that way to me now. I think as a student, JERP was starting to move towards a more holistic approach. Mm -hmm. And I think it now has more fully embraced that. Like, that's really exciting to me. And I was actually surprised when I expressed interest in coming back that they wanted me to run this piece of the curriculum because it hadn't been as fleshed out in 2015. But I think it makes a lot of sense to me why JERP is focused more now on science communication in terms of like where uh, we are politically uh, as a country and the challenges that science is facing yeah. uh, with public opin- in the public opinion, in the public eye, and and just the gravity of the trends we're seeing and how quickly we are seeing things go downhill and the climate warm and the sea levels rise and the glaciers go away. I think for a lot of potential listeners out there, they're really curious why would a primarily geosciences-based program want to incorporate things like 
journal writing, storytelling, sharing reflections, sitting out in the field and doing sketch art. But all of this, I think, revolves around a greater theme of how to tell your story. And we've talked a little bit why storytelling, this very thing that you grew up with, yeah. very formative thing that you grew up with when you were younger, why storytelling is, is more important than ever for scientists. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it has a lot to do with the fact that facts are not what grab us. Uh, we all think that it is facts and statistics that convince us of things to be true. And I think more and more we're realizing that it is people's emotional connection that engages them, their interest in a story or a narrative. Because we're all people, and it is more interesting for us to become engaged, perhaps, in the science of glaciers by hearing about a story of young people traversing across an ice field for a summer than just hearing about the amount of mass that the Taku Glacier is, is losing, right? If we can incorporate that science into the story, it, it has, I believe, much more likelihood of being held onto and remembered and acted upon. And I think in terms of JERPs, uh, engagement with that, like one piece that's really obvious to me is this place is just rife with storytelling. And it's amazing that we're just starting to realize that the history of this place is rife with storytelling. We do it all the time. The jerp lore that we, you know, swap around um, when we finish the traverse and we're sitting around the Norris Cache and we're swapping those stories. And, and I think it's such an enigmatic and such uh, fascinating landscape and these camps are so unique and it really like when you're here it grips you and I think for young people it totally grips them and so the science is gripping but just the experience of being here like all of that is perfect material for storytelling as a vehicle to communicate the science that we're doing um, and the like personal social emotional growth that's happening um, those things don't really like exist in these boxes at least in my mind they don't like they all sort of meld together and if we can share that with people I think it makes us more real I think it makes us more trustworthy and hopefully like by sharing that we are also we can't exist in this vacuum right like just for the sake of the program if we just did all these things and we never told anyone about it like this program wouldn't exist anymore we wouldn't get new students we wouldn't get the funding we need we couldn't keep doing the awesome science that we're doing so I think there are a whole bunch of reasons that it behooves JERP to be in the business of storytelling and science communication for the program itself and for like these young people who are going out and hopefully having fruitful careers in science or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the strengths of the program as I see it now, having experienced it just for a few weeks, is an active effort to, to cultivate that storytelling. And it comes initially, it's it's still risky. I mean, I think I would be apprehensive if, if I was up standing in front of the whole group sharing a reflection yeah. uh, at my late teens and early 20s. But at the same time, there is a little bit of a barrier broken after these long days out together tied in on a rope. You realize that everybody here kind of is having some of these same feelings, you know? And once that first yeah. person goes up and tells their story, which seems a little personal or perhaps is a bit vulnerable or a bit transparent, kind of a weak moment in their day, and they look around and they see all the head nods, then that gives them 
more encouragement and positive feedback to continue that storytelling. And then I'm really surprised, you know, I see uh, like during the day I, I, I might look at a student like, oh, they're a pretty quiet individual. And then the next day they stand up and they do their reflection. I'm like just blown yeah. away. Isn't that so cool? And that's the coolest thing. And then that gives me a lot of hope. I'm like, wow, you know, well, if they can do that within this group and they kind of get over the fear of translating what they're seeing, what they're learning in a more personal and impactful way, you know, perhaps are going to be able to do that and engage someone who just doesn't understand this place as much or, or perhaps never will come and visit in the way yeah. that they do. And that gives me hope that that sort of storytelling <laughs> will help us with a greater mission, which is helping to preserve these places, you know, and, and in a way that we would like to see them preserved. I mean, do you feel like this is kind of a, a sweet spot for you right now and kind of your career journey? Uh, because yeah. obviously you've talked about developing your, you know, your skill set as a scientist and as a writer, but you've been on, on uh, kind of on both sides. You need pure science and mm -hmm. study, but then you also worked, um, obviously in the, in the journalism world yeah. for a while and worked for a climbing magazine in, in Boulder for a while, if I recall. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I imagine that was great to develop a skill set, but perhaps, totally. I don't know, I, I don't know you super well, but I could see <laughs> there might be a little lack of alignment and kind of mission with that yeah, sort of job. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think this position is like really exciting because it does combine those loves really well. And definitely when I was like more strictly just in the writing world, I was always thinking about like, is the stuff that I am doing, like what, what is that impact? And, and it's really important to me that whatever I am working on in some way, whether it's teaching or writing or science, I'm working towards the issue of climate change and uh, natural resource overuse and these really pressing pressing issues and I think there are lots of avenues for us each to be each to be involved in like the way that plays to our strengths but in terms of my own like career path I both hold those loves um, of writing and science and working with participants and students and helping them think of good questions yeah. and I hope become like more thoughtful engaged citizens which I think also works towards that goal and certainly like the world of journalism sometimes could be a little disheartening you know I when you talk with like writers and freelancers we all talk about how we have to write the things that we're not excited about writing because we have to continue to work and um, but like it isn't exciting to write a listicle that that doesn't feel like it has any import. What's exciting is talking with people and telling those stories and engaging and telling a story that you feel like is meaningful. And so working more strictly in that that writing world, like sometimes I felt that, like that wasn't, those weren't the stories I wanted to tell and I'm still trying to figure out how I can balance all that. And I had some good conversations with Ben about this, mm -hmm. Ben Huff, about like, you know, is it possible to have your cake and eat it too? Is it possible to to only tell the stories you want to tell? Like, I don't know. Right now, I'm trying to figure that out and and not being um, having like foots in multiple camps can allow me to do more of that reflection and and is really fun and like feeds other parts of me to like being part of this very cool community. So. I think I'm learning a lot. I think I'm learning a lot from the students. Yeah. That's really neat. And that's also part of my world when I'm not at JERP too. 
that's awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, you you went ahead and answered some other questions I was just about to ask <laughs> in, your, in your thought process there. But um, yeah, I've learned a lot here too. And I, I think the biggest thing is that, that process of reflection. I come here to be disconnected so I can think about having my cake and eating it too. And, and yeah. I mean, from my perspective being, you know, decade uh, decades ahead of most people here, I think it is possible. Yeah. It's a slow and arduous process, but <laughs> what you need, what you need is exactly experiences like this, like built in from time to time yeah. where you step out before you get, before you dial up the treadmill too fast mm-hmm. and forget where you need to go and mm-hmm. that you need to step off from time to time. And then it gives you perspective where you want in the long view. And, and I think you won't get it all at the very beginning, but if you're always trying to nibble a little bit at some point, you know, of the hundred percent time you have, at least twenty percent can be dedicating your time to something that's meaningful and makes sense for you, and kind yeah. of hustling on the side to see if that can evolve into something that actually helps support you and your living yeah. too. It, it, yeah, it eventually materializes. Yeah. I also think that for writers and journalists and podcasters and like anyone who is putting information out into the world if you are focused on these sorts of stories like having scientific literacy is essential and I think that really like hit home to me as I was working in working for magazines and it was really important to me that like if I was covering a paper that had been published in a journal like I studied that paper and I talked to those scientists and I talked to scientists that didn't write that paper and sometimes that meant that the headline that the editor thought was originally there wasn't there and they would want to and like great people like I'm not trying to uh to put shame on an an editor um but like they're looking for what is going to get clicked on and and so like in the edits I would see well you can't really say that like that's not what that said and and so I feel really grateful that I have that scientific training and there was a point in my educational career where I was sort of deciding should I just only study writing because that's where I know I'm kind of gonna end up and like I really love science but I'm probably not gonna be uh, like be a scientist professionally Um, and then I sort of had this moment where I was like well I want to have a skill set a knowledge base and something else so that I can write about it well and so that is also important for my own growth and being here is like continuing to develop that skill set and understand the science so that I can tell it in the right way and not misinform people and it's it's hard because you fall down that trap of like I want this to be exciting like I want this to be an exciting headline and sometimes science moves slower than we want it to or there are no interesting findings there's no zingers yeah yeah yeah. and that (laughs) happens and it happens out here sometimes we have field days where Nothing really great science, got done. Science, a lot of it is about negative result, right? Yeah. Uh, we didn't find anything. Yeah. And that yeah. is a result. And it, yeah. it doesn't make for the most interesting article. But I feel really grateful that I have that, like, understanding and skill set. I'm continuing to work on it and hopefully helping, helping other folks yeah. continue to work yeah. on that. Well, Drew, I want to be respectful of your time yeah. and make okay. sure you get your outside yeah. time. Yeah. In. But um, I really appreciate your transparency about your process and your career so far. And I imagine the fair amount of listeners will be uh, curious about what you've done. Is there is there a way people can kind of see? I mean, do you have a, a site or a Twitter feed or anything like that as I far do, as like, you yeah. know, your, your writer life? Oh, yes, my writer life. <laughs> oh. Um, because, I do. Uh, if yeah. nothing else, just to kind of learn from your, your path, because I think there's going to be some listeners that have a lot of common values. As you. Yeah, for sure. So I have a personal website where you can find all of my writing and 
all the places you can follow me, uh, it's drew-higgins, uh, H-I-G-G-I-N-S.com. Zach Green is finishing up his geology major at UNC Chapel Hill, and he talks about capping off his degree with style with his dream field camp here in Alaska. I just finished up my geology major, or technically this is finishing up my geology major from UNC Chapel Hill, Okay. where it requires a field camp uh, credits. And normally a field camp, from what I've heard, consists of you know driving around the Midwest in a van, hopping out of every now and then to check out outcrops on the side of the road. And I was looking through like, geology.com, you know, massive list of different field camps that were viable and sorted by state and immediately went to like Alaska right at the top because <laughs> that, that has always been my dream. Not just because it started with an A. Not just because it started with <laughs> okay. an A, but that had always been like some dream in the back of my mind. Yeah. Uh, and I saw there was a field camp that you would get to traverse an ice field on yeah. and learn mountaineering skills and glacial, glacier travel skills and... It was just this bizarre dream come true, <laughs> and I, I started looking around to find if like anybody had done it. Started looking up information, and was just immediately so thrilled and, and psyched on the program that I applied and just did not expect to get it at all. It was like, when did you apply? Oh, what time was? It? I think I probably applied in early January. Yeah, I okay. forget what time I heard back, but. The application was a little earlier than other field camps, so I ended up not applying to any other ones. Because when I got the confirmation, like the, the call saying, like, "Hey, uh, would you like to come to Alaska?" I was just like, I tried to stay calm on the phone. Like, yeah, that, that sounds like a good opportunity. But uh, I, I was just after immediately after I hung up, was like jumping up and down and screaming. Yeah. I was so excited. So, what's the allure uh, for Alaska for you? Is it just uh, having heard other people come visit, or the photos, or a love for the mountains? I mean, what? So definitely a love for the mountains has been a huge part of of my life, even though the Appalachian Mountains are very, very different than the ones mm -hmm. surrounding us up here. And I grew up with snow, but didn't really ski much at all. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of disappeared in our area a lot. A lot of the snow, like on the ski mountains, is blown now. Mm. Even just like kind of in your lifetime mm -hmm. compared to like growing up skiing versus what it's like now when you go home and definitely months. Wow. It's like the winters just are so much more casual and mellow or huh. just rainy and gross now instead of like beautiful and the the figment and like that image of big mountains has always kind of like haunted my dreams and of course it probably is born from images from like national geographic yeah, and different sure. 
climbing documentaries and all these amazing stories that I just knew that I had to get up here somehow. Yeah. It was a different scale from what I'd grown up with. So when I saw there was a way to fulfill my credits and get here, was, there's no question. Yeah. What's, what's surprised you about the experience so far, Zach? I mean, has there been something that is kind of either blowing your expectations out of water or was a total surprise component of the program that you didn't expect you'd be involved in? It's such a intense and wild experience right now. It's hard for me to almost like process it yet. I feel like it's going to take a long time to look back and, and figure out what it was like. But the skiing, I expected to come in and be like, oh, yeah, I skied like a few times when I was a kid. And, oh, man, telemark skiing is so different. <laughs> that has been such an awesome learning curve to come and like in. like 30 miles of it, too. Yeah, yeah to, <laughs> to come in and have something completely new that I haven't done before and like, get the opportunity to like practice and learn that with people who are excellent and, and feel like a complete beginner again was awesome. I expected to come and you know, have some experience with rock and stuff and instead I'm just a complete neophyte. And that's, mm-hmm. that's incredible. It's really nice to try hard to learn a new skill and like feel like you know uh like a foal like walking around on crampons like <laughs> learn, oh, it's, it's just it's been wild it's been so much fun every day is like a new little adventure and then it, it's it's strange to wake up on a rote or like a routine day and be like oh well you know not doing much today no field work i'm just cooking and then you step out of your little cabin and you have the ice field in front of you and it's like no day is routine up here yeah everyone familiar with a wavelength? You know, like a sine wave? Mm-hmm. Is everyone familiar with a sine wave? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay, cool. So, this system, the, the wavelength, so from peak to peak, is about 43 centimeters. It's about this big, right? The low frequency system that we have, the wavelength is about 45 meters. Jeez. So it's huge, right? And so the, the, the main point of the difference of the wavelengths is we can resolve features that are a lot closer with these high frequency systems yeah and it's a, kind of a physics law we won't dive into it but the gist of it is we can see features that are separated from each other on the order of a quarter of the wavelength so if this thing is about 40 centimeters uh, for one wavelength then we can see features that are about 10 centimeters in separation for the low frequency system if we have a 40 meter system we can see features at about 10 meters apart from each other does that make sense mm-hmm. okay everyone with me so the other crux with that is this system is sending a certain amount of energy down through the ground. So we call it a finite amount of energy. It's not like this huge impulse, like you're not going to touch this and get shot. That was Director of Academics and Research, Dr. Seth Campbell, teaching in the field. Seth has participated in over 50 research field sessions to Alaska, Antarctica, Canada, South America, and Greenland. We talked about the successes of the program and what he hopes for the next generation of scientists and the next generation of scientific inquiry here on the ice field.
yeah, so I was here in 2007 as a student when I was uh, jumping in a master's degree and uh, have been trying to come back as often as I can since okay. that time. And how did you find out about the program at the, at the very beginning? I guess was it part of your master's program? or uh, No, you know, a, a friend of mine actually just told me about it, and and it was just kind of at a whim. I said I, I, I was big into climbing. I've been climbing since kind of late high school and uh, early college and um, was in the sciences and realized that this was a good mix for me to, to pursue uh, potentially a field in glaciology, and I was already kind of starting that track anyway. Yeah. So I ended up here and haven't looked back. And were you in the same kind of area of research or investigation at that time? By that point, I was starting to look at, I was starting to look at glaciers and wanted to study glaciers. Um, I wasn't really sure about how I wanted to study glaciers. Um, I've, I've since transitioned into using geophysical methods to look at glaciers. Um, It's definitely a a subset of glaciology. Um, But at that time, I really had no clue. And it was kind of cool to come here because so many different opportunities existed uh that i really hadn't been fully exposed to yeah um so that was kind of a in a, in a big range of people that i've become friends with since that time that we've actually since worked together right. uh, several times so it, you know, it's kind of opened the doors for for building up collaborations and lifelong friends yeah so for those who are listening obviously i got a chance to get to know you a little bit better the last few days and, and what you do but um how your career has expanded since the, that time in 2007 and specifically what you're looking at all over our, our cryosphere and, and you've been in antarctica greenland to imagine and yep. obviously here in alaska quite a bit but what's kind of your main area of study these days or focus of research yeah, so the the biggest focus is probably mostly glacier change and also just even quantifying glacier volume. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I do is is things related to measuring ice thicknesses and total volumes of different glacier systems I'm working on. Um, I'm also working on various projects related to trying to figure out how glaciers have been retreating over time and not just over short time periods of you know, recent decades, but over long periods of time. So, you know, 10,000 year time scales and, and even longer. So to do that, I work with a range of colleagues that have other expertise than I do. I use radar geophysics to look at things like ice thickness mm-hmm. and internal layering in the ice that can tell us a lot about the ice history as it moves down glacier. Colleagues do other fancy chemistry techniques and numerical modeling techniques um, so it's a neat career because you you certainly mesh with a lot of different other scientists uh, and you have to really collaborate with other scientists to figure out answers to these questions that are pretty complex yeah and you get to collaborate with them in pretty unique places of the world yeah you know other faculty you may talk with here we've worked with each other and other places in alaska and and some of us uh, some people tell us that we're kind of you know bipolar in a sense that we treat we we spend half of our year in the arctic and half of our year in the antarctic depending on the season and we see all the same people pretty frequently so it's it's pretty exciting to run into those people at two different places on opposite sides of the planet yeah um, on a year-to-year basis and you become really close with with the people you're working with by living with them day in and day out in the middle of nowhere and in that group of people how much overlap has has a history here with jerp in your experience uh, a, a lot yeah. yeah a lot uh, there's there's two faculty here at jerp right now that were actually with me in my 2007 year when we were students um, and they've consistently come back year after year and they've also worked with me on other projects both in alaska and antarctica 
that overlaps fairly consistent. Uh, our year alone, the 2007 year, I think probably at least half of the students that were in our year are still in cryosphere sciences and glaciology and, and related topics. Do you feel like the nature of the program here accounts for that high retention within the geosciences field, within the students that you attract here? And it's it, pretty inspiring. The thing that caught me coming to this program was the inspiration you gain from being in a place like this. Um, and I think when you talk with students, that's probably going to be something that they they remember, the inspiration they get from being here. Um, mm -hmm. They might not remember all the lectures and all the material that's covered. That's totally fine. That's not really the entire point of the program. Um, we do cover quite a range of material, and we basically are training the next generation of field scientists at this program. But I think what really captures people and keeps people going is that inspiration they get working in a place like this. Yeah. What attracted you to come back and, and be involved uh, now in your role and, and helping to direct the show here, really, yeah. in the I years was, ahead? I was never really great in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was the average student, I guess. And I really enjoyed learning in this environment myself. And and through the years, I've had a number of different roles from guiding to working in different teaching environments. And I've, it's always brought me back to an environment where I can teach in the field with hands-on. And the ability to teach hands-on uh, at a place like this is far superior to most places. I mean, the, the things that you see here, the, the terrain is, is so inspiring and, and there's so much variability of features, the, the teachable moments are are never-ending. With that, that's kind of what's kept me coming back to this place year after year and and uh, you know, the future legacy of a place like this. I mean, it's, it's continuously changing too, so that change, and you see that change happening actually on a day-by-day -day basis, that change really helps students grasp the concepts. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and as a teacher, you know, you, it's hard to get that in, in, in the classroom. Yeah, it's been unmistakable. I mean, to read the facial expressions of some of the students when within the short history that many instructors have here, which mm -hmm. is over the course of a decade, to see and to appreciate stories of change in a short period of someone's lifetime is, is quite impactful, I think. It, it is, and the, the other thing that I, the other reason I like this program is, is we do have such a range of students it's kind of getting students hooked on science, yeah. if anything. You know, the, the range of students include people that want to go into policy and, and law and become doctors and lawyers even, and, and, you know, the whole gamut, but also scientists. And it's a cool opportunity for students to kind of interact with each other and get to know each other, and you build this broader network. Um, and I, I think that's a really strong way to move about it. I, I also, you know, years ago I did a business degree, and part mm -hmm. of that was to actually, I did an MBA, and part of that was to mm -hmm. try to figure out how to speak business speak, I guess, with, with people that were in more of an economic business mindset, because I was always kind of more of a scientist. And, you know, it seems like we always do a good job keeping to our little groups, you know, scientists stick with themselves and engineers stick with themselves and business people stick with themselves. But the more we can kind of interact with each other, you know, I think society-wise, the better off we're going to be. And I think this program does a good job kind of introducing a wide range of students to each other in different fields. Well, a big thank you to all the jerpers out there. It was a pleasure to spend some time with you. Sorry I couldn't capture all your voices out there, but I hope this episode is a nice afterword to your summer journaling. I know you all just got off the ice, so best of luck to you all and your journeys ahead. For the rest of you listeners, to learn more about this great program, its faculty and students, check out junoicefield.org. Find out how to apply, follow their blog, catch them on Instagram. It's all right there. 
Well team, it's been a busy and hectic summer here, so sorry for the absence and delay. Been a bit buried with extra shifts in the ER since my return and a number of teaching engagements, but I want to recognize and uh, highlight from last month. The adventure activists had an opportunity to participate and contribute to the Sun Valley Forum at the beginning of the month. You know, to be in the presence of some of the world's boldest and brightest activists and philanthropists who are tackling climate, social justice, and poverty was yet another transcendent and transformative process indeed. It was an honor to be part of the family and it was a real blast to cap off the week with Patagonia Ambassador and my friend Gavin McClurg as we hosted the Five Point Film Festival here in town. Thanks to everyone who helped make this happen, but we know not all of you could take part. So if you want to catch some of the content, go on over to sunvalleyforum.com. Gavin and I will be following up with some big thinkers and bold adventurers later right here on the podcast. And also thanks to everybody who showed up to the film festival and submitted their comments to help with an initiative with the Idaho Conservation League and the Wilderness Society to preserve the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Okay, usual business. Thanks to Evan Phillips for helping with the production of this episode. We connected through his amazing podcast, The Fern Line. Check it out. It's about climbing in the great ranges of Alaska. Better yet, look him up and purchase some of his music on iTunes. And to you, thanks again for listening to episode 14. We appreciate your patience to get into this next episode. You know, we hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If this or prior episodes sparked a conversation or inspired you on your next adventure project, please let us know. You know, the best way to support this podcast is tell a friend or two, give us a good review, click some stars our way, or even better, share with some of your friends. Your show support, as always, means so much. Thanks all, and keep adventuring.